I take things to their extreme logical conclusion. And then it becomes very clear to me what has to happen. So if I am sitting here sobbing like a child, if I give up on my dreams, if I don't get focused on my portfolio, I return home totally defeated, mission unaccomplished, and I work my way into getting a state school, I, I could be good above average at a place where average people go. And then the rest of my life is written. And that's not a life I want to have. Future Podcast, a show that explores the interesting overlap between creativity, business, and personal development. I'm Greg Gunn. If you're a regular listener of the show, then you know our format. Chris talks with an interesting guest while carefully poking and prodding them with questions, all in hopes of learning as much about their experience as humanly possible. But today, we're flipping everything on its head. In this two-part series, the roles are reversed. Our guest and future pro-group member, Annalie Hansen, will be interviewing Chris. So think of it like a deep dive into the mind of Mr. Doe, the person, the businessman, and the educator. In part one, we get to hear Chris's origin story about how an introverted refugee became the confident YouTuber that you admire today. You know, it's easy to make assumptions about people especially when you haven't walked in their shoes. And this episode is probably the closest you can get to wearing Chris's sneakers. Chris shares very personal stories about his family fleeing Saigon, living life as a cultural outsider, and why it's so important to have and to follow your own internal compass. Now, there are some violent moments in his story, so skip ahead if you think that stuff might bother you. And I have to say that Annalie does a wonderful job guiding this conversation. And Chris is incredibly vulnerable in his responses. So as weird as this is to say, please enjoy our conversation with Chris Doe. Today's podcast is going to be a little different. Usually it's me asking my guests a bunch of different questions. But my friend Annalie, who's been part of the pro group and somebody I've gotten to know over uh, the last year, she really encouraged me to tell more of my story because I'm a very private person and I generally don't feel like this is a story that people want to know. And it was one of, during one of our live streams and she really insisted, hey, you got to do this. And okay, enough excuses. I've told you all to go out of your comfort zone, share your story, but maybe this is one where the shoemaker's kids have no shoes. And so with that, Annalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. Happy now, to be here. Now, for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, but you know what? Maybe it's more interesting if you introduce me. I can't. This is not how the show yeah. works. <laughs> this is not how the show works. You, okay, you got to just introduce, introduce yourself. Myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm Anneli Hansen, and I'm from Stockholm, Sweden. Um, I'm... 46 years old, so I'm not so new in this industry. And I've been working for like over 20 years with marketing, branding, and uh, brand strategy. And yeah, and I'm part of the pro group. And yeah, here I am. 
Okay. This is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> that was a rather unusual, unconventional introduction. I like it. And I think well, that might be, okay. yeah, I think that might be setting the tone for the conversation we're about to have. And there's not a giant structure or premeditated thing. It really is just about having a conversation with two people. So maybe, maybe I can start by asking you, what, what do you want to know that you think maybe I haven't done a great job of sharing? <laughs> Okay. One thing that I'm really curious about is when I see your website, it's really clear that you care about your mission because that is the first thing we see, but you're not talking so much about it. So I, I want to hear more about, about the mission and what drives you. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> mm. So you don't think we do a good job of explaining? Okay. All right. Let me see how to process that. Okay. <laughs> so for people who aren't, aren't familiar, the future's mission is to teach 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love without losing their soul in the process. And, and this comes from a very personal point of view in that as, as a creative person who, who went to one of the finest uh, design and art schools, at least in America, that I learned the craft I learned the theory, I learned conceptual thinking, but I'm not sure it was because of me or not that I didn't get a lot of business skills. So I had this false impression that all you needed to succeed in life was to go out into the world and show your portfolio. And <laughs> yeah. that expression, the work will speak for itself, was really something I held on to really tightly because of a lot of different reasons. One of the main reasons is because I'm an introvert. I don't want to talk about myself. I don't want to talk about anything. I don't even want to talk about my work. I would just rather put all my energy into the work yeah. so that the work would speak for me. And then I quickly realized I'm not going to get any business. I don't have any clients because I don't have any business skills. I don't have any marketing skills. Mm -hmm. And so this journey of self-discovery, of learning about business and figuring out that part of it became my entire obsession. Because I feel I felt like at that time yeah. I understood the design parts, so I needed to learn that. And then I okay. I was able to achieve some level of success where I felt like I wonder how many other people are in this exact same situation as me, not just in the United States but all over the world. And it turns out quite a few. So now mm -hmm. I've dedicated my life, my purpose, the thing that drives me, is to teach as many people as I can before I expire. Okay, but what it's still like I I, I hear what you're saying, but mm -hmm. it's like why why is it important for you? Like what because you do okay. work a lot and yeah. you're so passionate about what you do and there must be, you know, a reason why you feel like you can put in so much effort and work. Like what what do you what do you want to accomplish? Okay. So I, I think I understand the first part and then mm -hmm. Let's see if I can tackle the second part. The yeah. first part is this, is what, why, why even do this? Well, part of my story is that uh, I'm, I've, I'm, a, I'm a refugee. I'm a first generation immigrant. I was not born in the United States. I was born in Saigon, Vietnam. And my parents had to flee because of communism in 1975, April 30th, 1975. That's the moment when our entire lives had changed very drastically. Coming to America, we didn't have a whole lot. And I was 
very obsessed with like trying to understand how we can move up the socioeconomic ladder. I really was mm-hmm. because I, I would read in magazines and watch on TV shows like our life does not look like the lives that are being portrayed in these things that I'm staring at. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to achieve something with myself. And when I ultimately was able to find my creative voice and a career, I got way more than what I had bargained for in orders of magnitude more. I was content on just living some modest life and and, and having a small business, but I was mm-hmm. able to get more. And so I feel like now this country that's been so great to not just myself and my family, but immigrate, immigrants from all over the world, especially from uh, from Vietnam, I just feel like there's a debt that I need to pay off. Mm, okay. So that's the motivation, right? I yeah, feel like yeah. the scales have been so far lopsided in my favor. I don't mm-hmm. know how much I can do to like bring balance to it. Mm. And I feel like I want to balance that scale. Yeah. Okay. I see. So what what do you think would have like how would you your life look like if your parents didn't take that you know decision that day? Yeah. And you were still in Vietnam right now. Yeah. My life would be drastically different. My dad told me that, uh, and and I'll, I'll try to tell this story without totally falling apart on you, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was in the military, and the communists are not known to treat uh, enemy combatants kindly. My mom yeah. would tell me stories about how as, as the Democratic Party in Vietnam was being driven to the South, that there were mm-hmm. horrible stories of torture and all kinds of hor- horrific things happening. And she had told me a story about some some relatives that were buried uh, neck deep in the sand to, to, to be tortured and to, to, to die that way with whatever oh, creatures okay. that can find them. And that's just one part. And my dad knew, and he hated mm-hmm. communism so much because of the, the atrocities of things uh, that he had heard about and it had witnessed in his life, that yeah. for him, there was no option to stay. There were zero options. Mm-hmm. And he even told me that uh, on that day in that, that window that was collapsing in 24 hours and to get out of the country, he had told me that there were pirates, basically ship captains who were bringing people on their boat, collecting their money, and then taking them out to the sea and just pushing them off into the ocean so they can go back and get more people. Because oh there was nowhere God. for them to go. <sighs> okay. Okay. And so what he yeah. told me was, he says, even knowing that that was a high probability, if all mm-hmm. the options that were available to him didn't materialize, and many of them did not, he would have gladly taken us on those on that boat because he would choose death over living under communism because he also knew that's not a life for him, it's not a life for his kids, and he would probably be tortured and put into camp, which some of my relatives, mm-hmm. years or decades later, it, uh, were, were released from those prisons and they're there physically, yeah. you know, but, but that takes a toll yeah. on your psyche that I don't think you can ever yeah. recover from. Oh, my God. What a story. Have you been back to Vietnam? I haven't. Um, ironically, for the first time, uh, we had planned a trip to go back this year. Mm-hmm. Booked the tickets, hotel. It was going to be uh, our, our family and uh, my parents yeah. were going to go with us. 
and and then COVID hit and we had to make this decision. At that point, it wasn't clear yet like how bad this was going to be. And we were still mm-hmm. like weighing our options because I was really looking forward to this trip. Yeah. Of course. So here's the thing. We canceled the trip. And it turns out like Vietnam is one of the safer places to be, yeah. which is what the heck, right? We're thinking to ourselves, third world country is not going to handle this. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. probably one of the safer places we could have been, but whatever. But your parents, did they go back? Yeah, they've been back several times. Yeah. So, okay. So like when when you arrived to America, like how did your life look like then? We we arrived in 1975 and we landed in Kansas City, Missouri. And the reason mm-hmm. why we're there is because that's where our sponsor host family was. And the way this worked, as far as I understand it, is uh, there were large communities within the church were Catholic. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure what happened behind the scenes was they're, they're saying, like, you know, we need to find host families for these refugees that are also Catholics. Mm-hmm. They're God-loving people, oh. and and we need to, uh, you know, volunteers to help them integrate into American society. And so what happened was our families got split up into like large chunks, right? Because you, just so everybody can understand, both my mom and dad have about ten brothers and sisters each. Yeah. And then they have kids, and so one host could not say, okay, I'm gonna take a hundred of you, because I mean it's not literally a hundred, but it's a lot. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And so we were broken up. And so some went to Arkansas, some went to Kansas, and some went to San Jose. Yeah. But they all knew, like, okay, we need to stay in touch. We need to reconnect. Yeah. And and eventually we all kind of wound up mostly in the same place, which was San Jose. But we landed in Kansas City, Missouri, in a, in a poor part of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, we lived uh, across the street from our sponsor. And how old were you? Three, four? What I'm three. Yeah. Three. I can totally understand when you say, you know, that you can be a little bit upset when people have assumptions about you and your, you know, your story that you don't understand how, you know, people have it. Like you have been there, like you're there, you know, the first generation. Yeah. You, you have seen everything. Yeah. So, I mean, it's things like this happen happens all the time over the world right now mm-hmm. you know so i understand the story of people who struggle yeah uh, people who have been marginalized i understand what it's to be poor mm. i understand what it feels like to be an outsider uh, to be to be hated just because you're different and i've lived with that for a really long time actually but how how was it when you came to the u.s like were were there a lot of people from from vietnam like did, was were you the first person from Vietnam people have met? Like, you know, or yeah, how many I think so. Were there? Now, I'm not saying that there have been zero people from Vietnam in the United <laughs> States up until that point. I think there were some. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, I, I I'm not sure about this number. I think 200,000 people were able to escape with the help oh, of the U.S. government. A quick note here: according to Wikipedia, over 130,000 Vietnamese refugees were evacuated. Some went to Australia, some went to America, and some went to Canada. But a lot of us went to America. And I think for a lot of small town, mostly white uh, suburban communities, maybe this is the first time seeing an Asian person, most definitely the first time seeing a person from Vietnam. And so when I was growing up, 
people had lumped us all together. Like if you looked Asian, you're Chinese. Mm-hmm. That was just the assumption. Didn't matter if you're Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Laotian, Filipino, you were just Chinese. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I haven't told you that, but I do have two siblings that are from South Korea. Like, but of course they're not my siblings like that, but they, they are and they, but they're adopted and adopted can still have, you know, a lot of struggles when they come to a new country. So I can just, you know, imagine how it must be like. So how, how were you when you were like a little child and like, how, how was your personality? Were you shy or? Yeah. Um. I'm still shy, so it's I'm not drawing a big distinction between childhood and adulthood. Luckily, I have tools to cope and deal with uh, interaction and in, in social gatherings. But as a child, I was yeah. very quiet, unsure of myself. My older brother uh, is built differently than me. If, mm-hmm. One day when you meet him, you'll see like he has broader shoulders. He's and he's smarter than I am. And I'm not talking about like uh, uh, subjectively speaking. For point of contrast. My older brother uh, is a four plus point, like four plus point oh GPA student, right? Okay. He he goes to UC San Diego. He gets his master's degree from Stanford. Mm-hmm. He's in startups that get funded and then go public. And that's my older brother, and he's physically just bigger, like bigger hands, bigger bones, just bigger. And then my younger brother, mm-hmm. uh, for the long time, was just the 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 cute son in the family, <laughs> and he got all the attention because he has big round eyes and curly hair and 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 he just got that and here i am in the middle and the middle child syndrome uh-huh. is not helping my introversion here at all right yeah and i'm skinny like i'm relatively smart but not as smart as my older brother and i don't have the first son status because he's the oldest son from the oldest son kind of thing mm-hmm. so i was struggling for most of my teenage years up until that point like who am I? Yeah. How do I fit in this? And I can't measure up to my older brother. Yeah. I'm not as cute as my younger brother. And I'll tell you a funny story here. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking at old photos, right? My mom, thankfully, had tons of photos from from Vietnam, from Kansas, from wherever, wherever we were. Mm-hmm. They they thankfully I took a lot of pictures. And I would always look in the photos and I would say, which one's me? And it's always the ugly kid that was me. I was like, no, I'm that one, mom. No. I'm that one right there. No. <laughs> And she goes, no, that's your your brother. I'm like, shoot, you know, like I had my little squinty eyes and crooked smile and like the weird dimples in places. And I always thought like the cuter one should have been me, but he wasn't. And I just have to deal with that. This is so strange because when people see you today, I just see think they see like this super successful, you know, person who knows it all you know, with really good self-confidence. I almost, I think I told you, like, you transforming into this extrovert, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit strange to hear you talk about yourself like this because you often have this super, you know, self-confident. Mm-hmm. So when did this change? When did you transform <laughs> into this Chris Doe we know about? And my, my, my life story is about contrast. And so it's actually very yeah. easy for me to pinpoint moments in my life where things changed. Can you tell me about one? There are stages, right? When I found graphic design as a thing that I could do and as a career, just the idea of it, mm-hmm. that was the beginning of that change. It wasn't transformative in that moment, but for the first time in my life, 
I got clarity on the kind of person I could become and the things that I could do. Yeah. And that happened when I was 17, 18 years old as a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that started me on this path. And then when I got into Art Center and found people just like me, <laughs> yeah, art nerds and weirdos and introverts, and we all love design. Yeah. And I found that without a ton of effort, I was better than most people. And that gave me all kinds of confidence because for for the first time in my life, I found something that I could do, that I have a natural proclivity for, that I'm I'm good at, and people seem to acknowledge that, like my teachers and my friends. And I found that almost immediately. But I wasn't sure. So I would play this very cruel game, as my wife describes later. I asked everybody that would be willing to show me their portfolio. Oh, okay. Because I was told that... No matter how good you think you are, there are a ton of people there that are good, as good as you or even better than you at this school. Mm-hmm. So I had this assumption because I had seen the portfolio of one of the one of the art center's graduates. His name is Luis Fitch. Okay. I looked at his work because he came by our college and showed us his work. and I was blown away. Yeah. It was so, so good. So the narrative in my mind was, and, and he said this, I'm just one of many. And I, I think he was just being falsely humble at that point. Yeah. And he showed us showed us his work and was the best portfolio I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I'm thinking everybody there is going to be like that. So of course, when I get into school, as soon as I'm I make a few friends, I ask people, "Hey, uh, can, can I see your portfolio?" And they're like really proud. They're like, "Yeah." <laughs> and they don't even ask me to see mine, so it's cool, right? So I just get to see their work. And they would, you know, those those vinyl zipper bags and yeah, yeah, they yeah. would unzip <laughs> them and lay them out on the table with the acetate sheets and all that stuff and you'd flip through them. Yeah. And they were mostly compositional exercises, life drawing, color studies, and a little bit of design. Mm. And in my mind, I was looking at this and I think, this is so rudimentary. <laughs> this is so basic. I can't even believe you got into the school. <laughs> because everything in my portfolio was photographed, it was laminated, it was all about design and packaging, uh-huh. menu design, editorial layouts, shopping bags, none, none of these foundational figure drawing, none of that. Yeah, okay. Like I thought I had a real portfolio, but and then I looked at their work. I'm like, these are art exercises, man. Yeah. And you got into school. So one portfolio after the other, it started to confirm something in me. It's like, oh, I got a scholarship for a reason. <laughs> yeah, they had to pay. They paid uh, for <laughs> yeah. a lot of different reasons. I mean, I got yeah, a scholarship yeah, yeah. because the portfolio that I presented, I think, was actually in alignment with the major that I was studying. And two... I had financial needs. So those two things put together allowed me to get a scholarship. Yeah. But I wasn't sure. So I needed to know. And there's not that many times in life where you have these kind of questions where am I just the average bear? Am I worse than everybody? Am I better than everybody else? Where you can actually get confirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you get so competitive? Like, was it what were you really competitive or did you just want to show like, you know, your parents or yourself or like, why was it so important to have that to, I, to compare yourself yeah. to others? I'm a super competitive person, Emily. I think you know that. <laughs> and I don't think that just happened overnight. So when we're playing video games uh, as, a, as a kid, I wanted mm-hmm. to be better. We would go to the arcade and I have very fond memories of the arcade. And for young people, there used to be these places <laughs> inside the mall where you can go 
and you would you would bring a pocket full of quarters and then you would put them in there and you would play. And the goal was to play as long as possible because mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> and so if you can hold your own and and people would enter into the like there's a game I think it's called karate or kung fu or whatever and you'd battle other people and if you can hold that for a couple of games you're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so I was competitive that way. I was you know even playing hide and seek. I didn't want to get caught. I wanted to win. Mm-hmm. So it just translated into something I was actually good at because I tried my hand at sports. Terrible. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to win that game. Uh, so that when I finally found design, of course I'm competitive. I, I want to be the best. Yeah. But what happened when you won? Like, did you get any, did people, you know, compliment you or like, what was the drive to, to win all the time? You mean in games? No, yeah, but or, or in school, like were they oh. proud of you? Um, I I don't know because, well, okay. Well, <laughs> when you play a game, I try to be a gracious winner. I'm not a horrible person. I don't want people to think that. Like when I win, I don't like, no, oh, you suck, you you know, donkey, get out of here. <laughs> I'm yes. not like that. It's just a personal, just gratification. I want to just prove something to myself. Okay, but I, that's okay. what I wanted to hear. Like, yeah. is it for yourself or for it's somebody just for else? Myself. Because I, yeah, because I've been in that situation and, and I became kind of competitive because I had a parent who were really competitive. So that's why I wanted to ask you. Yeah, my parents are not competitive. Uh, Actually, my dad is very conservative, and he's a very quiet human being. He has a quiet confidence. He's not out there trying to like tell people this is what I've done. Not at all. And so when I, so when I ask people to see their portfolios, many of them never even asked me to show them mine. So I didn't even bother. I don't have anything to prove to them. And if people ask out of reciprocity, I'd show them. Yeah. Right. So I just, I'm, I'm just curious. I wanted to know where I stood in the game of design. And so when, when I was performing at the top of my class, I would say top two, three students of my class, not, not number one, but just top three. Mm-hmm. I felt pretty good. I I wasn't calling my mom like, "Mom, you won't believe I'm the, you know, in the top percentage of my." Class. I didn't didn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter to me that other people thought that or not. It just I started to know, and it's like, okay, let's keep building on this. And I was ultra competitive because yeah. what I I'd play a game with myself. The game was, can you be the best person in this class? In every single class. It's really interesting how you. Like how how you actually got that? It's kind of a self confident, right? Don't uh, that you didn't need that confirmation from somebody else? Yeah, I know. I talk about this a lot, which is you need to have your own internal compass, like right and wrong. Yeah. And and we talk about the moral compass, and there's ethics. Yeah. And then there's design. There's all kinds of things, and you need to be clear. Mm-hmm. So what what I would do is I'd walk around their room. And I would look at the work and I would know like, yeah, you did it this week or no, <laughs> that person killed you. And it is a horrible feeling in my mind. And when when this teacher said it, they were only confirming what I already knew to be true. Hmm, okay. And that's a big difference, right? So yeah, some people yeah, yeah. would come to class, yeah. present their work and think this was great. Yeah. Actually, most students thought that. And so when the teacher said this was terrible, uh, it, it created some kind of a fracture inside their mind. The schism mm-hmm. between what they thought they were and what they really were mm-hmm. was unbearable for them. So they would leave the room and cry mm-hmm. or they would cry right on the spot. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, 
this is uncomfortable for all of us, but you must have known this sucked before you came here. <laughs> you must have <laughs> <Okay>. known, right? <laughs> or maybe you were yeah. like unsure, like you weren't, mm -hmm. like <laughs> when I did work and I wasn't sure, I knew I wasn't sure. And so the teacher's going to say, this was actually really good and these, these are the parts I like, or this was terrible. I'm like, yep, yeah. it could have gone 50-50. <laughs> but I didn't go into a class thinking, that's it, nailed it. And then them to turn my world upside down. Yeah. So we talk about this a lot, Emily, yeah. which is to have this objective lens to be the witness to your own life and your thoughts. Yeah. I already developed this pre-Art Center. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Chris. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We'll come back to our conversation with Krista. When we go back to that moment, like, did, did you still feel like this outsider? No, I was feeling like I'm on the inside now. But there was still <laughs> okay. a little sense, okay? Because yeah. the way I describe it is this. Um, art school like this is broken up into many groups of people. Most mm -hmm. of it is uh, the affluent, like there's levels of wealth there. There's okay. uh, and there's a joke, right? The joke uh, goes something like this. And I heard the teacher say this. How do you know you're going to a public school versus a private school? Well, the nice cars are in the teacher's lot. That's the that's the <laughs> that's the public school. The nice cars are in the student lot. That's the private school. It was very much true. So yeah. I was driving uh, a Nissan 200SX, which was mm -hmm. a hand-me-down car from my brother who bought the car used. And it had a slipped yeah. timing belt. So sometimes, you know, when you drive around the corner, it starts to whine. So you can hear me <laughs> coming around the corner. Yeah. It's super embarrassing, right? It's like, hmm. it's like, here comes Chris. And <laughs> and my brother, he had uh, put a little love in his car and he put up tinted windows, but he did it himself. Mm -hmm. And of course, he didn't do it right. So it was bubbling. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be very clear with everybody, like what's going on. So I'm driving a secondhand used car. Uh, it was getting me to and from from home and school mm. while some of my friends were driving Beamers or Mercedes and and Porsches and things like that. I'm like, dang. Yeah. So there is that that class in terms of wealth. Yeah. And I, I, I was not at the bottom, but I was pretty close to it. Mm -hmm. I only knew a handful of people who were poorer than me. Mm. Uh, one of my friends, Jorge, he's from Tijuana, and he was just basically on his own. Oh, right. Whereas my parents were able to pay some of the tuition and the rest was was done in loans and scholarships. Mm -hmm. So oh. there was that part. And yeah. then you could tell the high society people, not only do they drive fancier cars, they dress differently. Yeah. Everything they have is different. And I'm I'm a bit of a uh I don't I don't want to say a scrub, but I, I'm 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 just like sometimes I shower, sometimes I don't. I'm, I'm, I wear clothes mostly out of utility and what I can afford. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes I, you know, this was my, in my hip hop days, <laughs> I'd wear like this burgundy colored trench coat and made of denim. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. With my doc, with my doc Martens. And I wore that mostly because I could sleep in it. Oh my sleep in it. Yeah. I could sleep in it because what? Yeah. Because at school, 
Um, I would work all day and night at school. And you went to bed in your clothes and just went to Literally, I slept on the table. Oh, my God. So I would I would go into a classroom where I thought, you know, there's not going to be a lot of uh, noise or distraction. I'd work there to three in the morning and I class was at eight or nine. And then I would just sleep there. And then I would go to the bathroom in the morning to uh, to brush my teeth and wash my face. And that was it. So I literally slept in my clothes on top of these hard wood tables. And that was my life. But okay, but I mean, did didn't you have? It, it doesn't sound like a life, like to me, more than going to school. Like, how, how were your social skills? Like, did you interact with people at all? I did interact with people, uh, but I I made a lot of conscientious decisions to not participate in anything that I didn't see as productive or helping me to grow. I I had this very real feeling in my heart and my mind that I have one shot to make it. Mm. A lot of these people, they're going to have a job that somebody's going to hand them, uh, a wealthy relative that's going to hire them, or their their network was so strong. I didn't have that. Yeah. And I knew this is it. And and I don't even know to be honest. Like maybe something would happen. Yeah. Maybe I get kicked out of school. I don't know. So I was not looking at it like there's a tomorrow. There's only today. So I had friends. Yeah. Um, and one of them I married, but <laughs> I, I would just talk to them and then they would say, hey, uh, do you want to go to this party or hang out? And I said, uh, no, you guys go do that. I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to stay in the computer lab. Uh, this is where I'll be. And I did this for the first two years. I didn't date anybody. I was like living this life of celibacy. I was a design monk, mostly because I had just, prior to getting into Art Center, I had just gotten out of a really bad relationship. Mm. It was toxic for years. And finally, it just I, I just couldn't handle it anymore. It was just so much heartache that I said, you know what, I'm done with girls for a while. I'm not saying I'm not attracted to girls, but I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to focus on this typography. Yeah. And wasn't that to break out the like another transformative moment for you in your life? It was. It was. I mean, like I said, like I had arrived already at school a certain way mm -hmm. and school just helped me to resolve a few things. But This this breakup, this girlfriend that I had was the first person I ever fell in love with that I dated for years in high school. And and we had a really tight but toxic relationship. Uh, it was not built up of honesty. Uh, there was a lot of manipulation going on. She was a lot, even though we're the same age, she was a lot more mentally mature than I was. And she had many suitors. Okay. Right. And she controlled. Mm -hmm. She controlled me and, and made me basically just looking for those little scraps of validation or affection. And it was, it was rough. And she played that game really well. And my friends were like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Why would you do that? Like I literally would get on a bus because I didn't have a car in high school. I would get on a bus and I think it took two bus stops or two, uh, not two bus stops, um, to a transfer i had to take two different mm -hmm. buses on two different lines to go see her and sometimes i'd go see her because she's like i need help in packing and that's all we would do i'd just come there just be manual labor mm -hmm. to help her and then i'd get back on the bus and go home and that's how i spent my weekends but there's a reason why you did it i loved her yeah exactly i mean i i wanted to show and to prove to her mm -hmm. and to her parents that i'm a good yeah. kid 
that I'm worthy of being a part of this family. And, yeah. and they were wealthy. They were actually very wealthy. Uh, both her parents drove Mercedes and they owned um, multiple supermarkets. Mm. And so it's kind of funny because it's like uh, one of those uh, teenage um, romance movies that you see where yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. the boy's a nerd and he's a poor person and this yeah, girl that he falls in love with is, is yeah. wealthy, comes from a different society. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, I'm, I'm not saying we were poor at this point, but like I said, there's just different class. So we would go to like yeah. a place like Angus Steakhouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she would say, you know, you order the prime rib and then she adds the extras like the mushrooms. And I'm like, my parents and I, we've never eaten here. We just yeah. don't go to these kind of places, a steakhouse. And then so I'm getting this whole world of education from her. Yeah. And we would go to the boulangerie and she would order this kind of bread with the pesto. And she's like, I'm very specific. <laughs> it must be this always. And she made it very clear to me what she wanted in life mm-hmm. and told me, go get it. That was our relationship. So what happened? What happened because we were into these transformative moments in yeah. your life and you said you had a few of them. Yeah. Like what happened after that? Well, okay, so years of dating her, just years of being tortured and just craving uh, some semblance of a normal relationship. I was living in San Diego with my older brother in La Jolla and I was trying to get my portfolio together so I can go to art school and in one of these conversations I had with her um, she had in the past uh, told me to uh, give her my credit card so that she can buy this dress and she had told me yeah she had told me that um, it was a loan I'm like great because it's not even my credit card my older brother got me a credit card because he saw that I was hustling I was starting to do business and he's like you need to establish credit Mm -hmm. You need to pay these things off. And I, I had a job, but I didn't make that much money. So I'm like, okay, you promised to pay me back because I don't have this kind of money. And she uses the credit card to buy a dress. And and then I'm like, can you pay me back? And she has money. She just doesn't want to pay me back. Oh. And it created a whole situation for me. Right? And so put a pause on that. Mm-hmm. So now I'm living in San Diego. And, and we, we have a, a, like a code, for example, uh, she wasn't supposedly allowed to have calls from boys, especially at a certain time, mm-hmm. proper family and all. Yeah. So we have code. I would call and hang up. Oh. And then she would know it's me and she would take the call. She'd intercept it so that she didn't get in trouble with her parents. So I think on one night, it's like eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. I think it's a Thursday or Friday. I call, hang up. I wait. I call again. Her mom picks up. So I hang up. <laughs> I wait another 20 minutes. I call, hang up. I call again. Her mom picks up. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a Thursday or Friday night. It's pretty late. Oh. I want to tell you I only did this twice, but maybe I did it three times. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm starting to feel horrible. I'm like, where would she be? Yeah. Right? And I'm just turned upside down. All the worst jealous thoughts in my mind is like, oh, my God, she's out partying, whatever. I don't know. And the next morning we talk and then she's like going out. And I'm like, so did you make it home or not? And she's like making up some cockamamie story. I knew it was super like mm-hmm. not legitimate, but I couldn't articulate it. And she was just very good at manipulating my words and feelings. So I just felt horrible. And I was just telling her, you know what? 
you, you don't know how much that dress uh, kind of uh, has become a problem for me. And my brother is like pissed off at me because he had to then uh, use his own money to buy a dress for a girl. He his younger. It was just a messy situation and mm. it created all kinds of friction between my brother and then my mom. Because they all know about this debt and this this very toxic relationship I have. Yeah. And so finally, I just told her like this. I just can't stand this. I I don't want to be with you anymore. I I know you went out with other people. I know that I paid for a dress that I'll never see, and you just lied to me all the time. And she goes, whatever. And she says, well, if you don't trust me, I said, okay. I don't. I I guess I'm not being rational, um, but I don't trust you. And. So this is over. And that that day, I just felt horrible. Like I was angry. I, I can tell you right now that I can tell it with some objective distance. But mm. I was crying. I was angry. I want to put my fist through the wall. It was like this sucked. And she was my entire life at that point. Mm. So that began this whole transformative process. And there's a lot of things that were happening at that same time that compounded the problem. One was I had promised my parents and my brother that I wasn't going to be entangled with this girl and that I was going to be focused on my portfolio. Mm. And so they saw me just throwing my life away. Yeah. And they couldn't handle it anymore either. Mm. So that, you know, we talk about this story arc and the dark night of the soul. Yeah. I had that night like two days after we broke up where I really did feel like, uh, you know, life wasn't worth living. And that uh, that night I cried like I've never cried before. And I felt like uh, I hated my brother. I hated his girlfriend. Uh, my mom just gave up on me and my dad was probably sitting there. I don't I didn't talk to my dad, but I was probably thinking my dad's like nodding his head like I knew it. I knew this was a dumb idea. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I had to make a really big adult decision as uh, an 18 year old kid would, which was do I want to continue living? Or do I want to do something with my life even though nobody believes in me? And maybe this is where the lack of validation thing begins. Yeah. Which was I was just going to do this for me. Yeah. Because at this point I had, had nobody that was in my corner. I remember this one thing. Uh, I don't share this that often. But I remember after talking to my mom and my mom had said, forget about going to art center. Just go to state school. It'll be fine. And that was code word for me, like, she's giving up. Yeah. Right? And Good I was enough. crying. Yeah. And I, I I have a younger brother. He's he's only a year younger. But he and I, for most of our life, did not get along very well. And I had remember that uh, he had loaned me some money. Hmm. And so I asked my mom, like, uh, I want to talk to him. And in that moment, I had said to him, like, I love you. And I appreciate you helping me. And there's a lot of stuff that's going on right now. And I'm crying when I'm saying this. And he's probably sitting like, what the heck is going on? Mm. Right? Because he and I don't have that kind of relationship where we're having these kinds of conversations. I said, you know what? I'll always be there for you. Because right now, you're the only person I I think I can count on. And this is like a person I don't have a great relationship with. Just keep that in mind, okay? Like we fought like cats and dogs. I think he was just super confused. Like, you know how sometimes when people get drunk and they get really emotional? Yeah. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> and I've had this happen to me from the other point of view. I think for him, yeah. maybe he was thinking, what is going on? Yeah, and maybe afraid of somebody's really suicidal 
I don't know. I don't. I don't think people think that. Uh, you know, but as a kid, I I I had fantasized mm-hmm. about suicide multiple times. You know, and I wanted to be painful for everybody. I really did. So this is not a new thought for me. I, I'm I'm sharing this with you because I'm I'm just trying to be as real as possible. You will make me cry now. You know that, but. Yeah, so that that was just my my road back. Like I'm not gonna do this for anybody. I have to do it for me, and I'm gonna do it no matter what. And I had made a promise to myself that I'm gonna get into Art Center. I'm gonna finish my portfolio, obviously first. Get into Art Center, and yeah. if zero people supported me, even though it was a super expensive school, I would do whatever I can. If it takes me 10 years to finish school, it will take me 10 years. If I have to work a semester and then go to school a semester or two, whatever, whatever needed to happen. So that was when it, in, in the arc, the character becomes super resolved. Like, this is it. Like yeah. you, you go down to the depths and then you must like Batman climbs out of the Lazarus pit mm-hmm. with his back broken. That was me. And I'm being very dramatic about it, but I, I want to share something here. So it's, mm-hmm. I don't want to tell you the story because I don't, I don't want a giant amount of pity from anybody. But one of the reasons why I think I'm as successful as I am is because of this trait which is I take things to their extreme logical conclusion. Yeah, you do. And then it becomes very clear to me what has to happen. So if I am sitting here sobbing like a child, if I give up on my dreams, if I don't get focused on my portfolio, I return home totally defeated, mission unaccomplished, and I work my way into getting a state school. I, I could be good above average at a place where average people go. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of my life is written. And that's not a life I want to have. Yeah. But did you feel like it's almost when you describe it, like you were this super sensitive and then this happened and then you like almost put on a mask. You know, it's like a superhero thing that because how could you handle it? I mean, it's not that you change overnight as a person or your personality, like you needed to do something drastical to Or how, how do you describe that? I, I I actually do look at it like something happened. So I don't know if a person can change in 24 hours, but I think if a person can, I did that night. So the switch was flipped mm. because it was so dire, so extreme in my mind that basically just go die or rely on yourself and prove to every single person that you have what it takes, that you're going to do this thing. So that night I describe it to people as and that night the child died and the the man appeared. And I, I, I'm a completely different person after that point. So for context, um, prior to that day, I would wait to the last minute to do my homework. So the assignment was due on Monday. Mm-hmm. I would literally be at Kinko's at Sunday night all night working on it. <laughs> yeah. And I was totally unfocused because I was basically watching late night shows. And back then it was Arsenio Hall and then CNC mm-hmm. Music Factory with Paula Abdul <laughs> and things that I, I'm like, I don't even know why I'm watching this. Yeah. Right. And so I put in the minimum effort that I needed to be successful. And that was pretty consistent with me throughout high school. And after that day, yeah, stopped watching the TV. I stopped uh, for obvious reasons because of the breakup. I stopped calling my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. I was just like, what kind of projects do I need to finish so that my portfolio can be at a point in which I can get into the school? That's all I was thinking about. So in a period of about, uh, I'm going to say like 45 days, maybe a, a little bit more than that, I finished yeah. all my portfolio pieces and I 
I, I even drove with my friend Jorge to Tijuana, had a professional photographer shoot the packages for me, mm-hmm. and I was ready. I was ready to get into school. I just feel when I hear that it's a little bit sad that, I mean, I, I know you were really successful, and, but like what, what happened with that? You know, when you say you totally change as a person, Mm-hmm. And I know I told you this before, but I, I do, I often, I'm often kind of good at reading people. Yeah. And I do see that boy in you so many times and also a really, really sensitive person. And, and, you know, I asked you a couple of days ago, like, did I really like, can, can't I read you at all? Because if you're so objective and you, sometimes you just describe yourself as this logical cold person and I'm like no that's not you like did I totally misunderstand you or misread you your personality uh no I don't think you misread my personality there is a a joyful whimsical boyish person inside this almost 50 year old body (laughs) it really is and and he gets to come out to play from time to time but when it comes to making hard decisions about yeah business or or accomplishing some kind of objective yeah that person has to wait okay so when you see me giddy and laughing like a schoolgirl, yeah. when you yeah. see me uh be so excited to talk to a guest or an idea or a concept <laughs> and i'm i'm very animated and, and my I, I let some of the antics go that yeah. is that person that person's been there and that person hasn't gone away it's just i'm 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 better at regulating who gets to mm-hmm. speak and when? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you don't have that reactions to your emotions at all. You can control how you react all the time. Most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I've been okay. in situations before where I felt like punching somebody in the face as an adult. As a kid, uh-huh. I had this feeling all the time. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't act on that. I'll share an example with you. Yeah. Um, there's one time, I, I think I'm maybe eight or nine years into the business and things mm-hmm. are going really well. We're successful, big clients, and I have a whole team of people. Yeah. And there was um, an art director who worked for me on staff. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about something. And he he's just, he's got a dark personality. Like he complains a lot. And I was in the other room and I could hear him talking. I have very sensitive hearing. And he said something like, oh, yeah, they just make stuff up here. Mm-hmm. And I dropped what I was doing. I went out into the room. Yeah. I said, hey, wh- what are you saying? Yeah. And there's a lot of things you can say about me that I'm going to be totally okay with. The one thing that you do that I lose my cool is you attack my integrity. Mm. I can't remember the specifics, but he had basically said, you lie. Oh, okay. And you could say like we're cheap, we're uh, we're not good designers, we have bad taste. Yeah. Uh, you could say yeah. all those kinds of things. It's not gonna hurt me. And I get this from my dad because mm-hmm. my dad, throughout all the many lectures and conversations we had when I was growing up, he said a, a man is only as good as his word. Mm. That's the contract, son. Yeah. And I always kept that. Like, I only have my honesty and my integrity 
Everything else, I don't know who I am, but I have that. Yeah. And that's the reason why my relationship hurt so much with this this girl that I fell in love with is because like I didn't know what was real anymore, what was true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she just made up stories all the time. <laughs> and so when this employee had said this about me specifically, not just broadly, hmm. and I said, tell me one time when I've said something and it for not to be true. And my voice, I could feel it. It was coming out, right? Mm -hmm. Like if this person uh, was going to do a little character assassination because he was just not, he was feeling grumpy. And if he, yeah. if you wanted to go down this road, I was prepared to go to whatever extreme that was going to be. And mm -hmm. I could feel it. And I was like, I said, you better take that back right now because that is not true what you said. And luckily he could see what's going on. He says, mm. okay, I misspoke. Mm. I'm like, okay. And then I just back, I'm, 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 I'm cool again. Yeah. But you, you don't, you not so often lose your temper, right? No. Not now. Not now. And there's a couple of times I can remember the times, which um, I, I really, I was ready to fight. And, and you know, I, I think women and men deal with this a little differently. Like when men are ready to fight. We're talking about exchange blows and punch each other in the face, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's not just verbally saying, uh, "I, you're stupid" or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so okay, yeah. Th there's a there's a story here. Uh, I was running two offices. We had a bi bi coastal situation where we're in Santa Monica, New York, and oh really? Yeah, one of my executive producers had said something to me, and I was like, yeah. I can't believe my employee is talking to me like this right now. So this idea of integrity and respect is really big for me. Yeah. You attack those two yeah. things and we're going to have a problem. And I remember, yeah. and I was like, my blood was boiling. And he was he was yelling at me at this point, saying all kinds of stupid stuff. And I said to him, and I said it in a very calm, almost like cold assassin way, Yeah. even though inside I was feeling very different. I said, look, I don't think this conversation is productive. My concern is if we continue down this path, mm -hmm. you will say something and I will say something that we can't come back from. And I think we're really close to that point right now. My suggestion is we end this call and reconvene tomorrow when we're both cooler. I said it just like that. <laughs> yeah. Right? And he said, I will not end this call now. We will talk about it right now. I said, okay. okay. That's your choice. Mm -hmm. Let's get into it. And then I think his heart and his mind were a little the timing was a little off yeah and then his his mind caught up with his heart which was like wait a minute i think i'm gonna get into a situation where i'm gonna get myself fired yeah so he's like no no you're right let's talk about this tomorrow so here's what i did my blood is boiling because <laughs> i wanted to tell him right then and there you're fired you know get out don't ever come you know i i wanted to mm -hmm. say whatever i wanted to say at that point yeah and we got off the phone and i give it a minute and I'm thinking, you know, if he's smart, he would send me a text message apologizing, saying I was out of line. Mm. I'm sorry. I've been under a lot of stress. Yeah. And that's all I need. I, that's all I need. I don't need a giant mea culpa here. Nothing came through. I checked my emails. I'm like, okay, 10, 20 minutes. I'm like, okay, this guy. No apology. No, no. no he's not retracting anything. So I call up my business coach, Kier. Mm. And, and Kier knows, like, I never call him. <laughs> And now when I'm talking to Kier, I'm telling him my true emotion right now. Yeah. Which is like, Kier, I'm ready to fire this person. He's done. He crossed the line. 
and Kira's like talking me through the yeah. whole bit. And he's like, Chris, I can feel that you're really upset right now mm-hmm. and you have a right to be. Yeah. Nobody should, no, no, no employee should ever talk to his boss the way that person talked to you. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they, they crossed the line. No doubt about it. And I would uh, advise you to fire him, mm-hmm. but let's be prudent about this. Let's set up a plan. Mm-hmm. As he's going to disrupt your office operations and the people that work in that office. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those moments where I'm like, okay, Kier, that's why that's why I have you because I'm ready to move. And so mm. next day came around, no email, no nothing. I went to office I, and I told my 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 other uh, uh, executive producer in my office. They said, hey, this happened last night, and somebody crossed the line. Yeah. And he said, you have a right to fire this person. I said, okay, it's sad. Yeah. But see, so like I could. Feel it, yeah, yeah, and see myself feeling it, and say like, how do I want to react in this situation? I wanted to react this way, but it doesn't mean I don't have those feelings. I do have those feelings. Yeah, that's what what I wondered. Mm-hmm. But and I was like, I I can see you have those feelings, and I can feel you have those feelings. So if you were saying something else, I would really question myself mm-hmm. seriously if I lo- lose my superpower. But okay, I'm glad. That you have those feelings, but you can control them. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. I witness the feelings and I interpret what they mean. And then I decide how I want to react Yeah. or respond. Yeah. And that's the first half of the story. Next week, we continue the conversation, going deep into Chris's personal mission, life philosophies, and the story of how the future came to be. See you then. for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.